building spirituality, family, health, and business. This is The Giant Builders with Lois Wyant. Good afternoon, Giant Builders. It's two o'clock on Tuesday, and here we are. My guest today is Stephanie Dusing, and I have been looking so forward to talking with you because I find your story to be just amazing. I, I see you as kind of like a super parent, you know. <laughs> just wow. because, well, just because of how you acknowledged the situation, just your to me, it seems like you were very determined not to give up. And I just, I admire that very much. So to catch people up, why don't you tell them a little bit about you and um, your story? Thank you. First of all, I wanted to say how very grateful I am to be here with you today and to have this opportunity. To everybody out there listening today, my name is Stephanie Dusing. And I am an author, speaker, and international advocate for people who have cerebral slash cortical visual impairment, or CVI. CVI is a brain-based vision impairment that's entirely different from ocular blindness. And um, I'm a former music teacher. I taught general music and chorus at the middle school level for 10 years before taking time off to have my son. And then I became an early childhood music and movement specialist. So my background is in music. And I actually made a major medical discovery in the field of visual neuroplasticity. And that's what my book, Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen, is all about. Can you expand a little bit more on CVI? Absolutely. So CVI was actually identified as the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world more than 10 years ago, and it still doesn't have a diagnostic code. It's completely different from ocular blindness, and we CVI moms call it the common disability that no one's ever heard of. It is a brain-based vision impairment, and so the eye and the optic nerve are healthy. And so my son is almost completely blind, and yet he passed every vision test every year because his, he has normal acuity. It is actually common for people who have CVI to have normal acuity because the eye and the optic nerve aren't, aren't involved or they, they aren't always involved. They, people who have CVI can also have ocular vision impairments at the same time. They can have both, but you know they don't have to. So for people who don't have ocular vision impairments and CVI, if they just have CVI, then they have normal acuity. So my son, he has he had brain damage at birth. And what happens is when you have brain damage, more than 40% of our brains are involved in visual processing. And in fact, I was just at a um, online sort of seminar where I listened to Dr. Dr. Arvind Chandna and Dr. Professor or Dr. Gordon Dutton, and they were talking about CVI. And Dr. Chandna talked about how when light enters the eye, it hits the back of the eye, it's transformed into a signal that travels through the optic nerve. It takes almost a tenth of a second before it hits the back of the brain before there's any conscious perception of sight. And so what that means is we literally see with our brains. Our eyes see nothing on their own. They just collect light. And all the seeing happens within our brains. And each part of the brain has a different function for vision. So the back of the brain is where motion perception is takes place. And as you travel through the brain, different things happen. And we have two different 
pathways for visual processing. There's the ventral stream and the dorsal stream. And so if you imagine the light coming to the back of your brain where motion processing happens and other things happen, then there's a pathway that goes up like the back of your head, like the top of your brain, that's the dorsal stream. And people who have damage to the dorsal stream pathways of the brain can have difficulty with, for example, visual crowding. So for example, things like looking at a Where's Waldo child's book would be very challenging or impossible for a person who has that type of brain damage. Um, any type of very complex scene, like going to a grocery store where there's just stuff everywhere is very hard to look at. So that's an example of dorsal stream problem, processing problems. Ventral stream processing problems have to do with visual memory. And so if you touch your right ear, just like above and behind your right ear, that is where the right fusiform gyrus of your brain is. And the right fusiform gyrus is where facial recognition takes place. And um, I had never heard of prosopagnosia back when we <laughs> first discovered my son had CVI, and I didn't know that it was possible for a human being to not be able to recognize faces. But there is an actual area of the brain, it's the right fusiform gyrus, where facial recognition takes place. And the ability to recognize your surroundings is processed right near there. So people who have difficulty recognizing faces also often have topographical agnosia as well. They can't recognize faces or places. And that's one, two of the symptoms of my son's condition that he has. So basically, different areas of the brain process different parts of vision. And depending on where your brain damage is, that can affect what you can and cannot see. So two things. First of all, is it not amazing how God put this all together? I mean, all the things you went through, I was like, oh, how that all works. And secondly... <laughs> It's amazing how much you know about the brain. I'm I was like overwhelmed. <laughs> I was forced to. I, I, was, I had to learn it to advocate for my son. Tell and, us how you found out about Sebastian. Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit about my son. My son, Sebastian, it, back in 2017, he was a straight A honor student. He's a very gifted artist who draws and paints with photographic realism when he wants to. And he's extremely athletic. He was on the diving team and also on the water polo team at his high school. And he was 15 years old in his sophomore year. And we were literally just about to enroll him in driver's ed. And we happened to be going through old photos on my computer. And I am one of those moms that literally, I made my son a baby book and then did nothing else. And I bought all of the craft book supplies. I have them all in my closet right now, right? I have, he has a $1,500 baby book, <laughs> right? And so we had not gone through these pictures for years. I mean, just for years. And so he had, I was narrating to him about who was in the pictures and we were looking at his baby photos and I was saying, oh, look, there you are with your cousins from Canada that we haven't seen for like seven years. And there you are with the neighbors from the old house we lived in when you were a baby that we haven't seen so there's a lot of people that he wouldn't remember or, you know, necessarily recognize in the pictures. So I was doing that as we were about half an hour of looking at baby pictures. And we had sort of migrated out of the baby pictures into the toddler preschool years. And all of a sudden, this beautiful photo of my son is about a three-year-old popped up on the screen. And I just said, oh, look, who's that? And it was just crickets. And finally, he said, how would I know? Oh. <laughs> 
I was like, it's you. We've been looking at, he's been looking at himself, pictures of himself for half an hour, right? And so I, just the hairs on my back and my neck, they just stood up because I'm like, that's not usual, right? That's not typical. And um, I had, remember in 2017, I'd never heard of face blindness. I'd never heard of prosopagnosia. I'd never heard of CVI. So I didn't even know any of this was possible. So I was just stunned. So I started quizzing him about other people in other pictures. It was me and my husband and other close family and friends that he would should know. And, you know, just 10, 15 years younger and thinner. That's <laughs> great. happens. But very obviously us, right? And so he was, he was guessing. He was very obviously guessing who people were. And so then I was like, ah, there's something wrong here. And I wasn't horribly concerned because, I mean, he was a straight honor student and he's, you know, it's our gifted kid who's going off to college. I'm like, well, this is odd, you know, but I wasn't scared or anything. I just was more curious to have a mystery to solve. So that night I immediately started researching. I'm on my phone, Googling facial recognition and everything that's coming up has to do with software, facial recognition software. And there, to be honest, was very little information available back in 2017. And when I finally got the right keywords Googled in, finally prosopagnosia came up and I was like, aha, this is a real thing. Okay. And it's supposedly, according to the internet back in 2017, it was very, very rare. And that that turns out to be totally wrong, but that's what I learned then, right? Like, oh, he's got some really rare, but apparently harmless thing, right? So no big deal. Well, the very next day, we discovered that he had taught himself to count his steps and turns as a toddler and had been navigating our own home that way and our small neighborhood and his extremely architecturally complex school. And then the the terror. I mean, because he was very much looking forward to going off to college. And overnight, we went just from being the parents of a very gifted artistic and athletic kid to being the parents of a teenager who we didn't know if he would ever be safe to live on his own. How do you send a kid off to college who is navigating by counting his steps and turns? I mean, how do you do that safely? So I knew then and there that my son needed orientation and mobility training services. And I knew that the only way to get that was to have a diagnosis from a doctor. So I immediately made an appointment with our neuro our neuropsychologist who had just done a full neuropsych evaluation on my son for a totally unrelated concussion. And I was using the correct medical terminology to describe my son's symptoms from that very first appointment. And that doctor said, I can't help you. And I don't know anyone who can good luck with that and dropped us. And we bounced from optometrist to ophthalmologist to neurooptometrist to neurooptomologist to neurologist to neuropsychologist. And we traveled across the country looking for anyone who could diagnose my son and prescribe a couple of weeks of orientation and mobility training for a blind kid. And we were labeled crazy by the medical establishment. And I was labeled a Munchausen mom. And my son was labeled mentally ill. And we were literally told that antidepressants would cure my son's vision. And it was ridiculous. Doctors were lying to us and hiding our own medical records from us. They pretended that they didn't know us. I was actually physically threatened by a neuro-ophthalmologist that we had never even met. He walked into our exam room and in front of my 15-year-old son screamed at me and put his fist in my face and screamed, tell me how it's possible he can recognize words and letters, but not whatever it was, uh, faces and places. And he was like, it's all the same channels. He was just screaming at me, you know, and he didn't even introduce himself. I was just 
I'm laughing about it now, but at the time, oh, yeah. horrible. I mean, it was yeah. just unbelievable that this man just lost it. You know, I'm just, it was awful. So we had a rough time and more than $150,000 in medical bills trying to get a diagnosis for what turned out to be the number one form of visual impairment in the developed world. It's totally common. And there's been recent studies out that show that one in 30 students in a regular ed classroom have symptoms of CVI, which makes it more prevalent than autism. So this is a huge public health crisis. Because although my son's form of CVI is a totally invisible disability, there's no way to tell that my son is almost completely blind physically, socially, or athletically. I mean, intellectually, there's no way to tell. If you met him, you would not know. But the vast majority of people have CVI. It's pretty obvious that there's something off with their vision. And even with these children who have really pretty obvious symptoms, their parents, their families go through horrific struggles just to get basic services because it's not recognized for anybody. And they're routinely misdiagnosed as autistic. They're routinely misdiagnosed as having um, intellectual disabilities. And they're routinely misdiagnosed with emotional and behavioral disorders. They're misdiagnosed with everything except what they are. And that's they're blind and visually impaired. So that's been my mission is to raise awareness about this common and poorly understood condition, because I know that if my blind son could be walking around looking 100% typically sighted, anybody could be. That's amazing that he can do all that. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing because when you think about how, how did we not know? Well, there's a lot of common misconceptions about CVI. And one of those is that all kids who have CVI, they don't make eye contact. Well, we actually have photos of my blind son making regular, consistent eye contact from his earliest days. We have photos of my blind son using something called visual guidance of reach at a developmentally appropriate age. That's another big myth about CVI. There's this huge myth that babies who have CVI, they they don't have visual guidance of reach. Well, my son did, (laughs) and we have photos of proof, right? And that's where you look at something and then you reach for it you know, and use your vision to guide your reach. So, yeah. So it was an entirely invisible disability. My son had all normal developmental milestones and took the training wheels off his bike when he was four. And he's been riding around our neighborhood blind ever since. Can he explain to you what he sees? Oh, absolutely. Yes. We are actually going back to Boston to participate again for the second time in the uh, the research study run by Dr. Latfi Maribet, who is the director of the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity at the Sheffens Eye Research Institute will be going back in August for the second time. And so, so Dr. Maribet and also Dr. Barry Cran, who's the head of optometrics at the New England Eye Low Vision Clinic at the Perkins School for the Blind, have had long, long conversations via email and in person with Sebastian because he's so brilliant at describing what he sees. So my son, for those of you listening today, is the only person in the world known to process his vision verbally, which means that he sees with words like a bat sees with sound. Before I had cataract surgery last year, I always wore glasses. And so my characteristics were tall, blonde glasses. And when my son thinks those words to himself, he gets a momentary glimpse of what I look like. It's just a flash of understanding and there's no retention in visual memory. And Dr. Latfi Maribet, who is at the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity and Associate Scientist at Massachusetts Eye and Ear and Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School, 
captured Sebastian's use of verbal mediation to process his vision in the fMRI and published a paper on it in conjunction with Dr. Barry Cran at the Perkins School for the Blind last fall in Neurobiologia. So this is a true story. <laughs> so what he does, so I'll describe my son's vision. So my son has no ability to recognize faces. So he has prosopagnosia, which is face blindness. He also can't recognize places, so he has topographical agnosia. So that means that every time he walks into a room, it doesn't matter how many times he's been there, nothing ever looks familiar. There are, it's no, no visual memory going on there. And so it's like always being somewhere that you've never seen. And in addition to those two, he also has object agnosia. So no objects ever look familiar to him either. And he also has that dorsal stream impairment that we talked about earlier with the difficulty with complexity. And he has another condition called simultanagnosia, which is a common symptom of CVI. Many typically sighted people know about, um, for example, tunnel vision, where they imagine that everything is dark and then there's like a circle in the center where you can see. Simultanagnosia is a little bit like that, except the outside area where the people think that would be dark isn't dark. My son's is blurry. So he perceives light, color, motion, vague, blurry shapes, but it's like a big blurry fog that's pretty useless, to be honest. This can't, you can't really see what anything is. And then in the very center, my son has a teeny tiny patch of acuity right in the center that allows him, for example, if he's reading something in 10-point font, he can usually see two or three letters at a time. He's got so little vision, so little acuity. So he has no ability to recognize faces, places, objects. He can't recognize biological forms like hands. He can't recognize his own hands or body. But the things that he can recognize are words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes. And he recognizes those just like we do. And so my blind son taught himself to read when he was two and a half years old and was reading and writing and was actually, he's very gifted. He was reading and understanding the old Nancy Drew book series that I grew up with, that I remember struggling with as a second and third grader. My son was understanding those when he was four in preschool. And so I knew at that point that he was very, very gifted, but we had no idea that he had any type of vision impairment because he was always making eye contact and he has something called, um, and I just forgot it. Sorry. I had a little, I had what's called a, um, <laughs> I had a minor stroke when Sebastian was born, which is why we both have this issue. And so sometimes word recall is hard for me. Like as soon as I want to say the word, it just disappears. <laughs> no problem. No problem at all. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever it was, I was going to say there, he has the ability to move through space. Oh, it's called blind sight. There's that word. And blind sight is something that we have known about. Well, and CVI, to be honest, we have known and studied about CVI since World War I, when the soldiers were coming back with gunshot wounds to the head and survived, and um, they had vision issues. And so we have known about CVI and also blind sight since then. It's been studied for quite some time. So my son has blind sight, which means it's, I think it's a function of motion vision, the motion perception. As he moves throughout a room, you could put him in a warehouse filled with obstacles and my son would never bump into anything because he has, it's like, like a warning detection system. Like somehow he's aware that there's an obstacle in his path, even if he isn't sure what the obstacle is. 
So he's, he's never tripped over anything. He's, I'm kind of a C student in gym and my son was getting A's in gym every quarter all his life. Right. So we had just no idea there was any, any problem whatsoever. Well, I find it amazing that, you know, like riding a bike or doing his sports, you said diving. I mean, yeah. That just amazes me that he was able to do all that. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was doing everything every other kid was doing. He was in band. He was in chorus. He was, you know, in the musical. You know, he, he was doing dance. He did gymnastics. He did soccer. You know, it's just everything that kids do. T-ball. I mean, he just did everything. Yeah. And we had no idea. And like I said, it's it can be an entirely invisible disability. And for those of you who my the listeners here today, if you need another example, you might want to look up the case of Dr. Oliver Sacks, who is the famous neuropsychologist who wrote the book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. The movie Awakenings was based on the story of Dr. Sachs. So Dr. Sachs was a prolific author, very famous man, and he also had CBI. He had prosopagnosia, so he had face blindness, and he also had topographic agnosia. So he had no ability to navigate his surroundings. And he suffered terribly from not having this diagnosed early on and receiving any type of orientation and mobility training services. He felt that he just missed out on life. He was sort of famous for not being able to find his way home. And I mean, people think that's kind of funny, but the reality is, is that people who are need to have orientation and mobility training services, blind children who don't receive this, they suffer terrible trauma. Mm -hmm. It is terrifying to be blind and to have absolutely no one around you know or understand that. It is terrifying. And my son suffered. My son was traumatized because of this. Well, I would assume like as a child, you would think that, well, this is just the way everybody is. This is what everybody sees and not understanding. So uh, what would we look for if we had a child that might be CBI? I mean, it doesn't sound like there's anything to really look for to, to diagnose well, early. Well, I mean, th- there are things that they, they look for, right? Any child, any premature child who suffers a pre, um, uh, a brain bleed, right? So these are children who are at risk. But the honesty, the honest truth is that anybody can re- get CVI at any age from brain injury. You can get it from stroke. You can get it from drowning. You can get it from anything where you, you don't have oxygen. So this is something anyone can acquire. But the reason that we have so many children who have it today is because so many little tiny preemie babies who did not used to survive are surviving now because our NICU care has increased exponentially. And so we have all of these tiny, tiny preemies and they frequently do have brain bleeds and they have cerebral palsy and they have epilepsy and they have CVI often. Those three things often go together. So yeah. And I think we're getting better at identifying those little newbies as, you know, the little babies as more at risk, but there's, that leaves all of the kids who weren't identified like my son, you know, and adults, they're now, many of them are now adults. I have many friends in the CVI community now as adults who didn't get diagnosed. One wasn't diagnosed till she was 26 mm-hmm. and she's legally blind. She lived her entire life legally blind in regular ed PE. And she has lower visual field loss. So she's never seen anything beneath her nose. Can't see her feet when she walks, can't see her clothes after she puts them on, has never seen the stairs when she's going down them. And she, her, she is in a regular ed PE class trying to play soccer. Can you imagine? 
doing that no. to a child, right? Okay. And so these kids that are maybe a little clumsy, right? They might look clumsy. They might, um, you know, they might have difficulty making eye contact. I'm always hesitant about this because like my son makes easy, what appears to be very easy eye contact. But, you know, for a child who isn't making eye contact easily, that's a warning sign, you know, but you can't assume just because your child does make eye contact that their vision is normal, right? Just like when you sit down in the optometric chair and you look at the big E on the wall, just because you looked at the E doesn't mean that you can see it. My vision was really terrible. And all I ever saw was a blur. <laughs> you know, so looking doesn't equal seeing, you know, so that's a good point. I never really thought about that way. You could, you could visually see that there's something up there, but not really know what it is. Right. And we know one of the reasons that it's so tricky is we know my son has something called affective blindsight. And so what that means is he actually is able to recognize facial expressions, even though he can't recognize the faces himself. Oh, wow. So he, that's a very powerful motivator for a baby or a child to look at a face because he, he could seize the emotion there. He's always been very responsive to emotional states of other people, you know? So, so you cannot rule out CVI if a child is looking at faces, but you can certainly be suspicious of it if they're not, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. friends at school, does he just recognize them by their voice? People who have prosopagnosia very commonly use all, everything at their disposal to figure out who people are. And that's what my son does, right? He uses the verbal characteristics to, he recognizes people and things by how we describe them rather than how they actually look. So like I said, tall blonde glasses, that was me, you know, but um, yeah, hair color, facial hair, any outstanding features that a person might have, the voice, even the stance is really common or the way they walk. People use logic, right? You're going to likely find the art teacher in the art room, you know, that kind of thing. They use everything at their disposal to try to survive in this world that was designed for typically sighted people, but it's a lot more work. Oh, definitely. How does he see words or how does he do his art? Well, that's, those are two great questions. So Sebastian sees with words. And as I mentioned earlier, he, he sees by thinking the words to himself of the descriptors of whatever he's looking at or looking for. So he's actually the only person in the world known to be able to choose to see or not see, because when he's not thinking verbal descriptors to himself, he has no conscious perception of sight. And Dr. Maribet did capture that in the fMRI. And it's quite astonishing to see his whole visual cortex light up when he's thinking words to himself to see. And then when he stops thinking the words and his eyes are wide open, his visual cortex just goes dark. So if you imagine like looking at like a, a basketball, you know, it'd be, how would you describe that to someone who couldn't see it? Right. You'd say, well, it's an orange thing with black stripes and it's around, you know, and that's what my son has to do for absolutely everything, everywhere he goes all day long and for everyone. And so he has this enormous memorized verbal taxonomy of descriptors for everything and everyone he encounters in daily life because he can't see it. So he has to have it memorized. And so life for him, he has said, is like being in an alternate universe where nothing ever looks familiar. Oh, man. Except for words, letters, numbers, simple shapes. And so he's constantly having to guess who and what things are. And he's such an incredibly good guesser that he appears to be typically sighted. 
Wow, he is a genius to be able to pull all this together. Well, he sure fooled us for 15 years. <laughs> Honestly, it's a miracle that we discovered it when we did. Yeah. What's next for the doctors with him? We were really lucky to find Dr. Barry Cran at the Perkins School for the Blind, who diagnosed Sebastian's CVI, and Dr. Latfi Marabat, who runs the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity, who ran the research studies on him. And as I mentioned, we will be going back in um, August to to do the research study again. Sebastian will be spending a couple of hours in the fMRI again, and they've learned quite a lot about visual processing and verbal mediation. And um, yeah, this it is my personal opinion that this is uh, a strategy that can be taught to children who have CVI to help them to be able to guess what things are. It won't cure their vision. My son's vision didn't get cured. You know, he's still blind, but it's really useful to be able to accurately guess what things are because at least then you can guess some things, right? Yeah. To use what little vision you have purposefully is helpful. So I'm hopeful that it will help create new therapies and new new educational strategies for kids who have CVI. Oh, your story is just amazing. Oh, thank you knowledge you've gained. <laughs> That's <just> amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It was a really rough time. I'll be totally honest with you. And the only reason that we got any help whatsoever was because of Lucas Frank. And I have to talk about him. Lucas Frank is um, just a fabulous guide dog trainer at the Seeing Eye Guide Dog Organization. Mm-hmm. And in the days after we discovered that Sebastian was navigating by counting his steps and turns, I just thought, well, maybe a guide dog would help him. And I reached out to the Seeing Eye and I talked with Pauline Surf Alexander, who answered the phone. And she asked me a few questions and asked me if he was bumping into things. And I was like, no, he's never bumped into anything. You know, and she's like, well, it sounds like maybe a guide dog wouldn't be the best fit for you because that's what guide dogs do. They, you know, they don't help you navigate, they just help you to avoid bumping into things. And I was like, oh, okay. I knew nothing about blindness. I knew nothing about guide dogs. I was just terrified of the fact that my son, I knew then that he was almost completely blind, you know, and that he was alone in this world blind. And I'm like a guide dog, at least he wouldn't be alone. Right. So she was very kind on the phone and we hung up and I thought that'd be it. I never thought I'd hear another thing. And a couple days later, I get this phone call from Lucas Frank from the seeing eye and he followed up. And so we spent quite a bit of time on the phone asking how we figured out what was going on and what the symptoms were. And then he talked with Sebastian for quite a long time. And he gave me some resources at the Chicago Lighthouse. He told me, you know, I should reach out to a couple different people at the Chicago Lighthouse for the blind. And that was so wonderful and so kind. And we hung up and I thought, well, you know, that was the nicest thing. And I didn't expect another peep from him. Well, I reached out to the Chicago Lighthouse and we got some help from there. But, you know, then we were still on the struggle to get a diagnosis and we're seeing one doctor after another and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And just a disaster. And finally, Lucas calls because <laughs> he, he, we were texting it towards the end. I'm like, this is just awful. And um, yeah, and he called and said, Jim Dermake wants to talk to you. And Jim Dermake is the head of rehabilitation at the Johns Hopkins Eye Clinic. And he actually donated a $150 course on CBI to me so that I could be a better advocate for my son. And so I took this course on CVI, it was Memorial Day weekend in 2017, and I was just 
oh my gosh, I have to find out everything I can. So I get an A in the course, you know, on Tuesday morning after Memorial Day, I emailing Jim going, okay, here's what's wrong with my son. And I'm typing in this list and it just keeps getting longer and longer and longer and longer I'm using every, all the correct terminology. What do I do now? We've got to get a diagnosis for this kid because he, he just needs some orientation and mobility. Why is this so hard? So he gave me a couple of names of people to try to get a diagnosis from. And even with his support, even with my course that I took with all the correct terminology, even with that, we were not believed. And so then I was like, okay, I'm just going to reach out to the guy who taught the CVI course. <laughs> and that was Professor Gordon Dutton, who is um, in Scotland, in Edinburgh. And he was just so kind. I typed this email to him. A couple of days later, he responded, how can I help you? And he actually arranged for us to have a week-long research study in Paris with Dr. Sylvie Chakran, who is the head of the unit of vision and cognition at La Fondation Rothschild in Paris. And it was amazing. Dr. Chakran did a full week-long research study on Sebastian. And for the first time, we had actual evidence of my son's brain damage. Ooh. Part of the reason we had such a difficult time getting a diagnosis for my son was because my son has a normal appearing MRI. Well, 10% of people who have cerebral palsy also have a normal MRI because an MRI only shows the structure of the brain. It does not show the function. So it's believed that about 10% of people who have CVI also have a normal appearing MRI. And my son is one of them. And so no one believed us because they look at his MRI and say, nope, there's nothing wrong. <laughs> so we took him to Paris and Dr. Chakran gave him a SPECT scan. And a SPECT scan is a nuclear medicine test that measures blood flow to the brain. Any areas of the brain that are not receiving blood flow are dead tissue. And my son had really significant brain damage because I had preeclampsia and I coded from the epidural and I almost died giving birth to him. I was a code blue. My blood pressure crashed to 40 over 26. I had a very minor stroke that I wasn't aware of. And my son also had brain damage. Ooh. And according to the, um, the fetal monitor, there was apparently no fetal distress. I was unconscious by that point, but my husband was there. So I gave birth the regular way. Um, and was told that I had a perfectly healthy baby. He got a nine on his APGAR score. And then I took my son home and I'm a music and movement specialist. And my son received intensive music and movement therapy from birth, just by accident of having a music teacher for a mother. And he had all normal developmental milestones because there are more than two decades of research demonstrating that music and movement in early childhood have just enormous neurological benefits. It's been proven repeatedly that children who receive high quality music and movement experiences before the age of seven have better balance, coordination, proprioception, which is knowledge of where your body is in space, language development, auditory discrimination, reading and math ability, and IQ. And so I didn't sit down with my son for half an hour every day and say, okay, it's music time. I just, you know, it was lullaby time because it's nap time and he got rocked and sung to. And then when he was ready to play, maybe we danced around the house, you know, and we did little bouncing games and finger plays and body awareness rhymes. And he was swung and twirled and danced with and treated like a perfectly healthy baby because I literally didn't know that he had had a stroke. Yeah. 
I didn't know. And so I treated him like he was healthy and I played with him throughout the day, every day with music. Well, that's amazing. So we're going to put some resources underneath here and your story just, I find it very, very hard, heart being, um, I just love your story and I'm Thank you. really excited to find out how Sebastian does. I'm going to have to reach out to you in a couple of years and say, how's Sebastian? <laughs> Thank you. I am so grateful for this opportunity. And to anybody listening, I just wanted to let you know if you have any concerns or th- anything at all about your child, go to the Perkins School for the Blind. They have a CVI Now webpage, which is full of really great information that's accessible and easy to understand. Well, thank you, Stephanie, so much for sharing your story. I just wish Sebastian all the best and hope that we can catch up with you and find out how he's doing. So Giant Builders, have a great day. See you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening. This has been The Giant Builders with Lois Wyant.